Lord Jesus, we praise you and we thank you. We know that without the shedding of your blood for our sins, we could have no forgiveness. And we thank you, Lord, that you were a willing sacrifice. You made that very clear when you said, nobody takes my life from me. I give it freely for the sheep. We thank you, Lord, for your great love wherewith you love sinners, undeserving people. We don't deserve the least of your blessings, the least of your mercies. We certainly don't deserve forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But because of your grace, Lord, you have offered them offered it to us and by you going to the cross and dying in our place you made our forgiveness possible so we thank you we ask lord that you would give us grace to live for you lord always remembering the great sacrifice you made for us that we would live for you in such a way as to bring you glory and right now lord we pray that you'd bless this final teaching and the book of revelation that you'd honor it bless it May your spirit bring it forth. And Father, we just give it to you and ask that you would, uh, right now, deliver this message in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 22? Revelation 22. Now. As we are about to enter into chapter 22, just so you know, the first five verses of this chapter are really a continuation of chapter 21. As we said when we came into chapter 21, we, um, at that point, had entered into eternity. Eternity. Chapter 20 dealt with the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. That was still part of time. It's a thousand years. Uh, but moving into chapter 21, we move from time into eternity and uh, into the eternal state where we will all live in the new heavens and on the new earth. Now, most of chapter 21 was about the new Jerusalem, the great city, the joy of the whole earth coming down out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband, which John describes in great detail because, quite simply, he was overwhelmed by its beauty and had to just describe it in great detail for us. He tells us that the city is a rather large city. It's a gigantic city, a cube, measuring 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles high, and 1,500 miles deep. The walls are also 600, excuse me, 216 feet thick, it has 12 gates, three to the north, three to the south, three to the east, and three to the west, each cut out of a single pearl. John tells us this, that the city is sitting on 12 foundations. This is all way of review, chapter 21. The city is sitting on 12 foundations, each made up of a different kind of precious stone, as John describes it, which he lists in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 21. The walls of the city are crystal clear like a diamond, and the city itself, along with its streets, are made up of pure gold, so pure it's transparent like glass. And right in the middle of it all, God's glory will light the city like a blazing sun. Go back to Revelation 21, and let's pick it up in verse 22. 
But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day, there is no night there, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, but there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Chapter 22 now continues with John's description of the new Jerusalem. Verse 1, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Guys, in Revelation 22, verses 1 to 5, we move from looking at the outside of the city. Remember, back in chapter 21, verses 9 and 10, the city is so gigantic that an angel takes John way far away to a very high mountain where he can get a, a panoramic view of the city. And he's describing what he sees uh, throughout the chapter. But now the angel moves him right into the city and he describes what he sees inside the city. And it's beautiful. It's like a garden, reminiscent of the Garden of Eden. And uh, there were four rivers in Eden. We know that from Genesis 2, verses 10 to 14. But there is only one river that flows right through the center of the New Jerusalem. Now, there are some questions that immediately come to mind. First of all, is this river wet? Is it made up of H2O or something else? It's called a river. It's flowing, but made up of what? We don't know. Is it really a, a, a literal river? Is it symbolic in some way um, is it contained in a riverbed or does it just flow through the air hey guys this is heaven all bets are off i mean everything you know about reality you gotta just check it because this is a, a, probably a new dimensionality so what are we talking about here i mean it's a river it flows but is it in a riverbed is it flowing right through the air through this City? I, we don't know. Now, John tells us that it's not just ordinary water. He says that it is a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, which means absolutely free of any pollutants. And of course, that would be the case because it flows directly from the throne of God and from the Lamb. And in God, there is nothing defiled. There is no pollution. There is nothing but purity and uh, so on. And this river... I believe is the one David talked about in Psalm 46, verses 4 and 5. There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. We get little glimpses of this city throughout the Old Testament, but now John sees it uh, in its glory and tries to communicate to us what is involved in this city. Verse 2, in the middle of its street and on the other side of the river was the tree of life. Uh, Greek is a little difficult from what I understand, but it's apparently saying here that this river of life flows down the middle of Main Street in the New Jerusalem. 
And right in the midst of the river grows the tree of life, which is so big that its branches extend so far over the river, crossing the river, extending over either side of the river. You can imagine that in your mind's eye. A very And I don't know how big the river is. I'm going to imagine it's not just a little stream. It's a good-sized river because this is a good-sized city. And so this tree has to be gigantic. And its branches will cover over both sides of the river. The first time we, are, we were introduced to the tree of life was um, back in Genesis in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 2, verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden. And then another tree is named probably out of thousands of trees that were in the Garden of Eden. Two are named, the tree of life. And the other one was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God forbid Adam and Eve from eating from. But they did, and that caused the fall. It caused their eyes to open. The theologians called it before the flood the age of innocence. They were naked. They were not ashamed. They were like toddlers playing on a hot summer day in a pool naked. You know how when you, know, when you see little kids, you know, little boys and girls, they're like, you know, a year and a half, whatever. In the pool, sometimes, you know, just naked, you know, and they're no shame. They, they're innocent. And that's how it was before the fall, before man's eyes were opened to the reality of good and evil, okay? But um, back to Revelation 22, verse 2. In the midst of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each fruit yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now, I'm going to be very honest with you guys. I have no idea what some of this is talking about. I'm just going to give it to you the way I see it. I, I know one thing for sure. When we finally get to heaven and you look around, you're going to say, wow, was Phil wrong? <laughs> Boy, he tried, but man, you know? I'll be honest with you. I, you know, here's the thing. We have never lived in the eternal state. We have never had our glorified bodies. And we read what Scripture says, but we also make assumptions. And here, it's like our assumptions are being challenged. Now, let's go through it. I'll tell you what I mean, right? So, again, uh, it talks about verse 2, uh, tree of life which bore 12 fruits uh, every month a new fruit this is meant to speak first of all i think of the variety of food in heaven why 12 different kinds of fruits why a different kind every month i think god just was communicating to us that in heaven there's going to be variety variety now be careful there will be no meat in heaven we will not be eating meat when God originally created Adam and Eve, he created them to be herbivores. Just like every other creature in the garden, everything was, was uh, going to be sustained through fruits and vegetables. There was no animals eating animals, people eating animals. That was a product of the fall and the curse. The curse, as we're going to see now, is completely removed. And we are going to go back to the time where we will be herbivores. And, um, and, and, and God is going to uh, give to us some delicious things to eat. 
Um, not because we're going to be hungry, but just to enjoy um, and to have fellowship over meals and things, right? Um, remember now, Jesus, after he rose from the dead, when he had his glorified body, he ate at times. Not that he had to eat, but he ate for the sense of fellowship. Also, at one point right after they saw him uh, having been risen, risen from the dead, they thought he was a ghost. Remember that. And so he says, come, touch me. Does a ghost have flesh and bone as you see I have? You got any food here? Because in that culture, they believe ghosts never ate. Okay? And so let me show you. I'm not a ghost. And so he ate. Uh, and there were different times when he did eat with his disciples after his resurrection. Again, not because he was hungry or because he had to eat, but simply for the, for the joy of fellowship and, and uh, eating, okay? Now, it says that um, each tree yielded its fruit every month, and the best translation is probably each branch. Each branch of this tree of life um, produced a different kind of fruit every month. The idea of a month throws people. I thought we were in the eternal state. I thought that time was no more. What is this month stuff? Good question. I don't know. One commentator, I think, makes it all clear. Here's what he said. The use of the term month does not refer to time, since this is the eternal state and time is no more. It is an anthropomorphic expression of the joyous provision of eternity couched in the familiar terms of time, end quote. Okay? We'll move on. Look, it's possible that there is time in the eternal state, but time that never affects anything. I was thinking about this today. Is there going to be special holy days in the eternal state? Probably. Special feast, maybe. Possibly. Well, then you have to look forward to those things. So it could be that there are days and months in the eternal state, but nobody ever grows old. It never affects us in any negative way. It's just because people in this life, we're used to time. Everything is about time. It could be that God carries that over into the eternal state in some way, uh, and that there are months, because these branches produce a different kind of fruit every month, and yet the months don't affect us age-wise. We'll never age or that kind of thing. Uh, again, we're at a disadvantage. We've never had a glorified body, and we've never lived in the eternal state. So we're trying to understand. We're making a, a, assumptions, and yet maybe some of those assumptions are wrong. We have to wait till we get there, right? Um, but the leaves of the tree, this is interesting. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. Well, that throws you. People say, wait a minute. If the leaves are for healing, does that mean there will be sickness in heaven? No, I don't believe so. The Greek word translated healing is therapia, from which we get our English word therapeutic, which could be translated healing in the Greek. But the Greek word could also mean, listen, life-giving or health-giving. Life-giving or health-giving. It doesn't mean healing from sickness, but rather a maintaining of health. In fact, the original language also implies 
exhilaration and invigoration. So not just existence, but wow. I mean, you know, the older I get, the less good I feel, all right? But think about a time in your life when maybe you had a really good day. Maybe 20 minutes, I'll take anything. Well, you just felt invigorated. Why do I feel good today? I have energy. I just feel great, right? Multiply that by a million times a million times a million, right, for all eternity. But it does seem, though, that these leaves are going to be used and why I have no My assumption is you get your glorified body, you don't need to do anything else with it. Okay, it's self-sufficient. That's an assumption. It, this seems to imply, no, these leaves we eat on a constant basis, and they continually allow our bodies to be invigorated and infused with energy, right? One author put it this way. He said, and I quote, the leaves of the tree can be likened to supernatural vitamins. Since vitamins are taken not to treat illness, but to promote general health. Life in heaven will be fully energized, rich, and exciting, end quote. All right, verse 3. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. There shall be no more curse. As we have already talked about, man was created by God perfect, when he ate the forbidden fruit and fell, it brought all kinds of things to bear that are negative things. Uh, one of those things was entropy, where things are wearing out, growing old, going from order to disorder, life to death and decay, that kind of thing. That all was all brought about by the fall of man and the curse. The curse now is finally lifted, which, it, which uh, was imposed in the Garden of Eden, but now is forever, finally and forever, uh, lifted in the eternal state, which means, listen, no death, no decay, no growing old, no wearing out, no entropy. No entropy. Remember what Jesus said in chapter 21, verse 5, Behold, I make all things what? New. And the idea is continually new. Continually new. Nothing ever wears out in the eternal state because there's no entropy. Uh, there might be time in some respect, but it doesn't affect us in like we grow up, grow old, so on, that kind of thing, okay? But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall, listen, serve him. The word for serve is a form of a Greek word associated with worship. Let me read to you. Uh, first of all, out of the uh, New King James Version, Romans 12, verse 1, where Paul said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. But then you read the same passage out of other translations. Let me read it to you out of the NASB, New American Standard Bible. Same passage, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is, listen, your spiritual service of worship. Why the difference? Because the Greek word implies service and also worship, and the translators are trying to 
communicate that Greek word in a way that you'll understand that it's service, but as a form of worship. It's the same word that was used of the Levites uh, when they their whole ministry was to serve God in the tabernacle and then the temple. When the Old Testament was translated into Greek 270 B.C., called the Septuagint, they used the same Greek word to communicate the idea that the Levites were serving God, but it was their worship to God. Service and worship go hand in hand, right? And um, we, of course, are going to be a kingdom of priests for all eternity. And um, our service to God, whatever form that takes, will always be um, a form of worship to our God. Guys, in heaven, God will have plenty for us to do. And none of it's going to be tedious, boring, or done grudgingly. Right now, sometimes it's hard to get people to serve God. You know, they don't really want to serve God. They want to stay home and watch the ball game on Wednesday night or whenever we have church. God bless you guys. But in, in the eternal state, in heaven, I think we're going to be fighting over duties. Oh, God, well, Lord, why does he get to go again? He went last time to Mars. I want to go to Mars and pick those flowers for you to bring back to the altar so you have something that looks nice as we worship. That kind of, I don't know. I'm just, what, what do I know? I'm just, you know, I don't know. We'll see what happens. I do think that everything we do for God is going to be like the first time we've ever done anything for God. Uh, nothing is going to be boring. Um, it's all going to be done out of extreme joy as an expression of our worship to Him. And again, um, even that will never grow old. So the first time you serve God will be glorious. The millionth time you serve God will be just as glorious, just as fresh. How is that possible? I don't know. But God said, I'm going to make all things continually new, continually fresh. We'll see. Okay. Revelation 22, verse 5. Excuse me, verse 4. They shall see his face. This is what makes heaven heaven. Not the golden city and uh, all that goes with New Jerusalem, as spectacular a city as that's going to be. What really makes heaven heaven is we're going to see God face to face. Okay. They shall see his face. And his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun. For the Lord God gives them light and they shall reign forever and ever. Speaking about us, right? This idea that we're going to see God face to face. This is something that has been promised to us throughout um, the Old and the New Testament. Let me give you three examples. Matthew 5 verse 8. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall what? See God. Pure in heart is a reference to believers, okay, who get a new heart when you accept Christ, right? 1 Corinthians 13, 12, Paul said, for now, we see uh, in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know God just as I am known by God. I'm going to see him face to face. Psalm 17, verse 15, As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness, speaking of resurrection. That's what the psalmist is talking about. 
This idea of his name shall be on their foreheads. Now think about that, all right? In the eternal state, God's name shall be on all of our foreheads. Um, and look, you only write your name on what belongs to you, right? Isn't that how that works? I don't go in your garage and start writing my name on your lawnmower or your weed whacker. There's laws against stuff like that. You only write your name on what belongs to you. Quickly, turn back to Revelation 3, verse 12. Jesus said, he who overcomes, that means he or she who has genuine saving faith, that's how you overcome the world, by your faith. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name, my new name. All right. Well, what is that? Well, if Jeremiah 23, verse six is any indication uh, that says now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. The Hebrew is Jehovah Tzidkenu. That could be the name that God writes on all of our foreheads. The Lord is our, is our righteousness. Now, you might be thinking, won't that be kind of strange for everyone to be walking around in heaven with God's name on their foreheads? Well, is it any stranger to walk around with Calvin Klein's name on your leg or, uh, you know, something? Or some other designer, right? Why do people buy designer clothes that have the name? Uh, I think the, the most outrageous example of this was, I think, Tommy Hilfiger. I saw a pair of pants where the, his name, each letter was about that big, right down the whole leg. And I'm thinking, boy, you want to be identified with that designer, don't you? I mean, there are people that want to be identified with a certain designer. Well on their shirts or on their jeans. Well, we will wear the name of God on our foreheads, listen, with great joy as the one we belong to and forever want to be identified with. That's a badge of honor. It's not going to be weird at all. It's going to be something that God says, you belong to me. Wow, Lord, I want to write my name right in your forehead. You go right ahead. I want to always, always proclaim that I belong to you, right? You know, Erdman's Bible handbook said something that is important here. Um, as the Bible opens with the story of paradise lost, the Garden of Eden, so here it closes with the story of paradise regained, okay? Guys, it is, it is a perfect consummation. One author put it this way, no more curse, perfect restoration. Throne in their midst, perfect administration. Servants shall serve, perfect subordination. Shall see his face, perfect transformation. Name on foreheads, perfect identification. God is the light, perfect illumination. Reigning forever, perfect exaltation. Now, I don't know if you know this. The rest of Revelation 22 is an epilogue. 
This book is uh, sandwiched between two bookends. A prologue in chapter 1, describing the true Jesus, the one that we worship, the one who is coming again to bring us into his kingdom someday. And it ends with, a, with an epilogue, which summarizes and closes John's vision. So the prologue of chapter 1, the epilogue at the uh, end of chapter 22, are bookends that, that um, have the sandwich between them, the book we call Revelation. Now, this, this epilogue um, serves not only as an epilogue for the book of Revelation, think about this, but as a fitting conclusion to all 66 books of the Bible both the Old and New Testaments. Verse 6, Then he said to me, These words are faithful and true. He said to me, Who's talking? John. Why did the angel say this to John? John, these words are faithful and they are true. I think because John was having a hard time absorbing all this. He's a first century fisherman. And he's been transported into a world that makes Star Wars and special effects look lame. And I think that John was overwhelmed. And I think the angel, and I think the, I could just see the angel coming around, John, putting his arm around John. John, fuck up, buddy. I know it's a lot to absorb. But I'm telling you. This is all the word of God. It's all faithful. It's all true. God's going to bring every word to pass. Just Hang in there. It's all going to happen, right? That's a good word for all of us. When we look around us, especially in our day, when everything looks like it's crumbling, disintegrating, lying and cheating and stealing everywhere, and it's like everything is crumbling around us, and we lose sight of the fact that God's given us some special, very great and special promises about what's coming in the future. So don't get your eyes on, as Peter did, the Sea of Galilee with the storm, and he started to sink. You keep your eyes on Jesus because he's faithful and true, and he's going to bring to pass everything he pro he's promised, not the least of which he's going to get us very soon, take us to heaven where we will be rewarded. We'll talk about that in a second. And then come back to the earth for a thousand years to live in paradise and then move into an, the eternal state, which we can't even comprehend with our little finite minds at this time. So, you know, that's all coming. Um, but but poor John, a lot for him to swallow. And so it's all true, John. Uh, God will be faithful to his word and bringing it all to pass. Verse 6. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Guys, when it says here that these things must shortly take place, um, the Greek doesn't mean short in the sense of chronology. Uh, the Greek word is actually the word we get our word tachometer from, taku. And it means when, it, when they start, they're going to carry out in rapid-fire succession. And we're talking about, primarily what the angel is talking about, is the events of chapters 6 through 19. What we call the tribulation period, basically. Okay, um, These things... Uh, not that they're going to come about in a very short period of time because it's been 2,000 years. But when they start, 
It's going to be like dominoes tripping each other. It's going to be a fast, rapid-fire succession until it's all consummated and Jesus returns. That's, that's the idea, right? Um, but this idea shortly shall shortly take place. is repeated again in verse 12 and in verse 20. And um, so um, all take place very rapidly, seven years, to culminate all the uh, events of uh, chapter 6 through 19. Verse 7, Jesus said, Behold, I am coming quickly. <clears throat> Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Behold, I am coming quickly. Guys, that is not just the theme of the book of Revelation. Listen but also of our Christian lives in general. The implication being, I can come at any time, so be ready. Be watching. Now, that is a theme that is woven throughout the entire pages of the New Testament, but especially the Gospels. Jesus hit this hard and often. Turn to Mark chapter 13. And if you don't do what Jesus commanded here, it means you're going to be asleep in the light. You can't fall asleep if you're watching. All right? Paul said in Romans, what, 13? Uh, I think it was 13, but it's now high time to awake out of sleep. Our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed, right? Well, how do you fall asleep in the light? How do believers fall asleep? They're not watching. Why aren't they watching? Because nobody's teaching them prophecy. But in Mark 13, starting with verse 32, Jesus said, But of that day and hour no one knows my coming, the rapture. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, and pray. For you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country, who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. Boy, that last one gets, sends shivers up your spine. Um, I think we would agree. If Jesus tells us anything we need to listen if he repeats it we really need to listen if he says it three times wow this is like top of the list stuff we need to do well he says watch three times directly and once by inference four times in these five or six verses he's commanding us to watch for his return the only way you can watch for Jesus' return is to know the signs of his return or the prophecies that he has given. 27% of the Bible is prophecy. They don't all deal with Jesus' second coming uh, or the rapture, but a lot of them do. And the only way for you to be watching is if you're, you know what to look for. That's why churches that don't teach prophecy, they're not helping their people be faithful to what Jesus said to watch, to watch, right? Um, what does it mean to keep the words of this prophecy of this book? Jesus commanded us. Blessed is the person who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Well, basically, it basically means to guard, 
to watch over, to preserve intact, and of course, it means to obey. This is the responsibility, especially, uh, and this responsibility is especially great in light of Christ's return, in light of Christ's return. You realize that the Word of God is under greater attack in our country than ever before in our nation's history. Why? Because we're getting close to the end. And Jesus told us, the nearer we get to his return, the more the persecution against God's people would be ramped up. We are seeing it. It's not going to get any better until Jesus comes. It's going to get progressively worse. And so be prepared. But as things get worse and worse uh, around us, the persecution is ramping up. Watch all the more because that indicates Jesus is coming for his church uh, very soon. Very soon. But that being the case, the words of Jesus, of the Lord Jesus, spoken in Luke 18, verse 8, tend to haunt me. When the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? And the, the idea is the faith. The faith. Earnestly contend for the faith, Jude tells us, right? What is that? It's the body of truth we call the New Testament. That's church doctrine, right? When the Son of Man comes, will he really find the faith? On the, I think he will. Um, in the hearts of individuals, maybe small pockets of people. It won't be like it is today where, what, uh, over a billion people profess to be Christians, which we know they're not all Christians, but they profess faith in Jesus Christ. It's not going to be like that. When the Lord comes, probably the second coming is in view in this passage, okay? But um, the Antichrist will have converted so many people to his new religion. And so many believers will have been martyred for their faith during the tribulation period that when Jesus finally comes, there won't be a lot um, of true faith. You'll have it. There will, be, there will be believers. And the Lord will rescue them from the Antichrist and they will be allowed to come into the millennial kingdom. But um, it's nothing like it, it is today. And we have people that, are they actively trying to depopulate the world on top of everything else we're talking about? Possibly. I'll let you run with that. Revelation 22, verse 8. Now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he, the angel, said to me, don't do that. That was becoming a habit with John. And, I, and my heart goes out to him. He got, he's overwhelmed, you know? And at one, at, at, at least two, two times, I think, um, he's so overwhelmed by what he's seeing, he just falls down at the angel's feet and starts to worship the angel. The angel's horrified. God's angels, the good angels, never receive worship. Now, Satan, the king of the false fallen angels, that's all he wants is to be worshipped like God and his angels as well. But God's angels, true angels, right, the ones that have been faithful to him, um, they never accept worship. And so this angel says to John in verse 9, See that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant 
and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book, worship God, John. The implication is God alone you worship. None of us is worthy of worship but our King, our great God, Almighty. Worship Him. Verse 10, And He said to me, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Now that's interesting. Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book. Uh, we think of Daniel, who was shown many of the things John was shown. Daniel had some remarkable visions given to him of the end times. Kingdoms that were coming. Different things that were going to, to transpire, right? And, and uh, he was incredibly overwhelmed by those visions as well. Um, and he was told, write them down, seal the book, go your way. These things, uh, Daniel, are, are not going to be understood until the times of the end. So go your, Daniel wanted to know, Lord, what does all this mean? And the Lord said, write them down, close the book, go your way. They're not for you, Daniel. They are for a much future time. Daniel 12, verse 4, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. But after receiving the prophecy of the book of Revelation, John is told, don't seal it, the time is at hand. Now, this is interesting because John wrote this 2,000 years ago. And it's, it's like, well, I mean, Daniel wrote, what, five, six centuries before John. Okay. But the end is near, basically. So, John, don't seal up the book. Uh, write it down. Take it to the churches of Asia Minor, which many believe John was the overseer of that region of uh, modern-day Turkey, uh, a circuit of churches that John uh, typically made his rounds ministering to each of these churches, and, and the Lord wanted the, this, this prophetic you know, uh, a book that he had given John, he wanted it unsealed. Uh, the book of Revelation starts out with a blessing for those that, that do not seal the book but try to understand and do all that's written in it. All right? But here's the thing that a lot of Christians don't realize. We are in the last days. Oh, sure we are. I mean, that's obvious. The last 10, 20 years, that, we're in the last... No, no. The last day started with Jesus' first coming. How do we know that? Because the writer of the Hebrews tells us that. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. God, who at various times and in various ways, spoken time past to the fathers by the prophets, has, listen, in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. So Jesus' first coming officially began the last days. Sounds kind of odd because when we talk about the last days or the end times, we think the last 40, 50 years. But no, they started with Jesus' first coming and will culminate with his second coming. Okay? Revelation 22, verse 11. My point is that we are in a position, well, especially in the last generation or two, we are in a position as believers that no other believer in the history of the world has been in like we are in 
Knowledge has increased. People are going to and fro about the face of the earth. Technology has allowed us to understand a lot of things the Bible predicted that had, they had no way of understanding what that meant. How can I buy and sell without cash? Only with a number? How is that possible? Well, we know all that, right? And um, those things had to be in place. Telecommunications, computers, all that for the world to come together in a one-world government. So we're here, right? But verse 11, this is a very interesting verse, guys. <clears throat> I'm going to try to explain what I think is being said here. I could be wrong. Very uh, interesting verse. Confuses many. Verse 11. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. Is this saying that God does not want men, women, to repent and change their ways? Some people interpret it that way. Of course, that would go against the whole book of Revelation, which at various points the Lord basically stops and interjects his thoughts. Hey, look, this is coming. So, you know, adjust your life accordingly, basically. Right? I mean, all through the book, this is what we have been studying. Especially when the, um, the seals and the trumpets start, God unleashes a flurry of judgments and then stops. He backs off to give people time to think about this and to repent. So all through the book, God is trying to get people's attention. Um, and that's why, you know, uh, we, we have different places where um, Jesus stops and, and, and speaks directly, uh, saying, you know, look, time is short. Um, this hasn't happened yet. It's coming. So get your life right with me now, right? Um, but, but, but let's not forget the gospel. You know, I mean, I, I know it sounds like the Lord is saying, look, um, if you're unjust, you're going to stay unjust. If you're filthy, you're going to stay filthy. If you're holy, you're going to stay holy. What does that mean exactly? Well, I think the angel's words must be understood in light of the repeated statement, Behold, I come quickly. Uh, Jesus said that in Revelation 3, verse 11, chapter 22, verses 7, 12, and 20, as well as his statement, For the time is at hand, Revelation 22, verse 10. To give you a flavor of this, there is other passages that basically um, are, are along these lines here. What is Jesus saying? This, this statement in verse 11 has to be seen in the context of Jesus coming quickly. So whatever changes you, you, you need to make, make them right now before he comes. Right? Before he comes. Because when he comes, he's going to take unbelievers, the unbelieving world by surprise. And once they see him coming, this is at his second coming, of course, they won't have time to repent or change. And then everyone will be, listen, cemented, for all eternity, in whatever state of belief or unbelief, uh, of holiness or filthiness they were in when Jesus finally appeared at his second coming. This idea, well, I'll wait for Jesus and then I'll get right. This is saying that's not an option. Okay? Uh, you Christians are always talking about Jesus coming. Well, when I see him, I'll know you are right and I'll get right with him. 
too late. And that's, I think, the essence of what verse 11 is saying. Today is the day of salvation. If you wait until you see him, it's too late to make any changes. Everyone is going to be frozen in that state of belief, unbelief, holiness, defilement. That's it for eternity. It is what it is. Harry Ironside says something I like to quote. He said, It is a divine emphasis upon the solemn truth that as a man is found in that coming day, so shall he remain for all eternity. In this world, God is calling men to repent, here and now. He waits to renew, by divine grace, those who commit themselves to him. But in the eternal world, there will be no power that has not been in, ex that has not been in exercise here to make the unjust righteous or the filthy clean, end quote. In other words, once you enter into, well, you die or you, you know, you enter into the eternal state or Jesus returns, I should say, um, to establish his kingdom. At that point, whatever state you were in, believer, unbeliever, whatever, that's going to be where you remain forever. Verse 12, Jesus said, And behold, I am coming quickly. In my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Now I believe the Lord Jesus Christ is directing his words at his church. He's, he's given the unbeliever uh, a warning to get right now. Get right with me now before I return. Now he addresses uh, his church, telling us that at the time of the rapture, we're going to be caught up into heaven as Christians, where we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and, to, and there we will receive our rewards. The judgment seat of Christ for believers is not punitive. It's like the judge's seat at the Olympics, where you receive your award for the service you rendered. Um, there would be no, nothing punitive. Jesus paid for all of our sins, so there's nothing punitive about the judgment seat of Christ for believers. Unbelievers will stand before Jesus at the great white throne judgment, and that will be punitive and they will be cast into hell for eternity. Um, verse 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning uh, and the end, the first and the last. The word beginning there is a Greek word that means the active source of all creation. That's important because the JWs read these verses with the word Jesus saying, I am the beginning, and they say, yes, he was the beginning of the creation of Jehovah. So Jesus Christ was the beginning of all that Jehovah created, which makes Jesus a created being, and that's heresy. That's not our Jesus. The Greek word is not the beginning in the sense the first created being. No, it means the active source, arche, the active source of all creation. Well, through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that was made. We understand that, right? But these uh, are titles, the Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end, first and last. These are titles for God and Jesus being God, of course. They are used of the Lord Jesus Christ in the prologue. What is the prologue? It's the beginning part of Revelation where God is stating, uh, a, uh, giving us a statement of faith. Who is this Jesus that we're talking about? Well, he is the Lord God. He is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end. Uh, he is those are terms used in the Old Testament for Jehovah God. Well, Jesus is, of course, Jehovah God, second person of the Trinity. And so these are titles for the Lord Jesus Christ. 
um, used in the beginning of Revelation, the prologue, as an introduction to the true Jesus Christ John is writing about. Okay, a lot of false Christs, right? And even today, so a lot of people, Jehovah's Witnesses have a false Christ. Uh, you know, Mormons have a false Christ, uh, not the Christ uh, Jesus of the Bible. This is why John wants to clear the. He does this with his gospel too, by the way. The first 18 verses of John's gospel gives us a prologue, a statement of faith concerning the true Jesus Christ he is about to now tell us about. Okay? I'll just draw your attention to Revelation 1 quickly, verses 7 and 8, to tell you, show you what I'm talking about. Behold, he is coming quickly with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. And now Jesus speaks, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, uh, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Jesus Christ is not a mighty God. Second to Jehovah God, who is Almighty God, that's J.W. theology. He is Almighty God because he is equal with the Father and the Son together being one God. But guys, Jesus created all things, and uh, he will bring everything to his desired conclusion because he is God. It's all going to be, he is the source, but he's also the, cons the um, consummation of all things. Verse 14, Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. As I said earlier, the Garden of Eden was the uh, original location of the Tree of Life. Turn back to Genesis quickly, Genesis 3, and let's read verses uh, 22 and verse 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. The Trinity is speaking, uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, speaking in the plural. Man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Verse 24, so he drove out the man, mankind, Adam and Eve, and he placed cherubim, that's plural for cherub. Uh, cherub is a, a, the highest form of an angel. There are principalities, powers, dominions, thrones. There are rankings of angels. Uh, Michael is an archangel, one of the top guys. Gabriel, I would imagine, probably an archangel as well. We don't know for sure, but Michael. It's called the archangel, right? Um, so a cherub is, uh, is a, the highest form of an angel. And the highest of the cherubs was who? Or is who? Lucifer. He was the top guy uh, over all the other angels, okay? So verse 24, so he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east uh, of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, there are those who believe that after the fall, God placed cherubim, two angels, to keep fallen man from uh, going back into the garden because God drove them out of the garden, right? They had fallen. And now he places these two green beret angels to guard what? A lot of commentators say, well, See, God didn't want Adam and Eve to go back into the garden and eat of the tree of life and go on living forever in their fallen state. So he had to put these big, massive, powerful angels. Really? 
Any angel would have kept man out of the garden, right? I mean, it's Stanley, uh, Harry. It didn't have to be, you know, uh, Michael or Gabriel or anything like that, right? Um, I and many others believe that those cherubs were placed there by God, listen, to protect the tree of life from the devil who wanted to destroy it so man could not go on living forever. You say, I don't get that. I don't either. I don't understand it. I'm just telling you what the Bible is teaching, that this tree of life, if, uh, if um, yeah, I believe if Adam and Eve had eaten from it, they would have gone on forever in their fallen state. But that's not, I don't think, what's going on in Genesis, where God places two very powerful angels at the, at the gate of the garden, what, to keep puny man out? You don't need a powerful angels to do that. But you do need powerful angels if you're trying to protect the way to the tree of life from the enemy, Satan, who is strong and powerful and would want to get in there and somehow destroy this thing so that mankind could not ever have eternal life. Say, I don't really get that. I don't either. When we get to heaven, we'll find out. Okay, because that's, I'm surprised nobody's made a movie out of that. That's pretty incredible to think about. Okay. Um, J. Vernon McGee said, and I quote, Eden was a garden of trees among which was the tree of life. God kept the way open for man by shedding by the shedding of blood, of ultimately the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Uh, Revelation 2, verse 7. Interesting. He, Jesus said, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Okay. Back to Revelation 22, verse 15. Now, we're talking about the city, New Jerusalem. We've been on the inside now looking at things. Verse 15, but outside, yeah, way outside. Somewhere so far in the remotest regions of the universe where no light penetrates, a place where there is a star burning but not giving off light, it's called the lake of fire. That's where the star is. It's a lake of fire. You're going to have all that defiles cast into that place. Hell, lake of fire, right? But outside, verse 15, are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. Um, these are not literal dogs. Dogs were, uh, uh, were a way of speaking of what was defiled, unclean. Of course, in that culture, uh, first century culture, dogs were scavengers in the ancient world. Um, they were considered unclean. In fact, Gentiles were referred to as dogs. Uh, the Jews called Gentiles dogs because the Gentiles were unclean. Uh, but Paul the Apostle called Pharisees legalists dogs. Okay, so it was a derogatory term. Uh, for anything that was defiled, okay? Um, look at Revelation 21, verse 8, because uh, verse 15 of chapter 22 is playing off of Revelation 21, verse 8. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So that's where all the defiled are going to spend eternity. Uh, none of them will ever be allowed to enter the holy city, um, ever. Verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you 
these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. This is interesting, guys. Don't miss this. As the root of David, Jesus brought David into existence, right? The tree, it comes from the roots, right? Or whatever fruit the tree bears, all right? Uh, so if the, if the tree is the, is the uh, Judaism, is the Jewish people, um, the root of David would be that one that brought David forth, which is Jesus Christ, okay? Uh, Jesus Christ brought David into existence, but then he's called the offspring of David. Um, Jesus, although he brought forth David, gave him life, David gave Jesus life in his humanity, right? He's the offspring of David. David is the Jesus is the root of David, gave David life, but Jesus is also the offspring of David. Uh, who came into this world, born a Jew from David's line. Guys, both the deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ are in view here. We, uh, you don't have to turn to it, but you remember Matthew 22, verses 41 to 46. At one point, Jesus said to the Pharisees, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Oh, and they said, son of David. Well, then how in the spirit does David call him Lord, saying, uh, the Lord says to my Lord, sit here at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. If, David, if, if he is David's son, son of David, Messiah, how could David call him Lord? See, in that patriarchal culture, uh, the children called the father Lord, but the father never called the children Lord, right? But here you have a situation where the son of David, Messiah, um, he is the David's son, but he, David calls him Lord. And when, and when Jesus dropped that bombshell on the Pharisees, they slinked away and it says they didn't dare ask him any more questions. They're trying to trap him. What they didn't understand was that Messiah was going to be both man and God. Of course, David called him Lord because Jesus became a, God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, even though he was born of the lineage of David, David called him Lord because it was proper to call God in human form Lord, right? Warren Worsby said, and I quote, The morning star announces dawn's soon arrival. Jesus is called the bright and morning star. The morning star announces dawn's soon arrival. Jesus Christ will come for his church as the morning star. But when he returns to judge, it will be as the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness in burning fury, Malachi 4, verses 1 to 3. Because God's people look for their Lord's return, they keep their lives clean and dedicated to him, end quote. Amen. Verse 17, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears, come. And let him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life Really, guys, this is the final invitation in the Bible for sinners to come to Jesus and be saved. These invitations are sprinkled throughout God's word. Isaiah 55, verse 1, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And we cross-reference that with John 4, where Jesus said, I am the living water, right? It's talking about Jesus. Anyone who thirsts in their soul, come to Jesus. He's the living water. 
drink, you'll have eternal life. Believe in him is the idea. John 7, 37. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Right? Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me, Jesus said, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Guys, salvation is a free gift, but you have to come and receive it. God won't force it on anyone. And that's why these are invitations. I don't agree with those who say God forces people to believe. He forces some not to believe. That's not an invitation. That is um, a command. And that would be go. Do. Not come. Come is an invitation. Hey, come to my house this Friday. Over here. Let's have a meal together. I'm inviting you. I'm not saying you better be there because I'm going to send my armed guards. If you, we'll drag you right over. Well, that's not an invitation. Okay, that's a summons. Okay. But salvation is a free gift, so come and receive it before it's too late. Is what Jesus is saying. Verse 18. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. You think God is serious when it comes to messing with his word? You don't do it. God is very serious. It's no small thing in the eyes of God to mess with his word. Why? Because Psalm 19, verses 7 and 8 tell us the word of God is perfect, and it's pure. And you mess with it, you're not going to make it more perfect or more pure. You're going to pollute it. And that's what man has done. Listen to what God says as we bring this to a close. Deuteronomy 4, verse 4, uh, verse 2. God speaking, you shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take, uh, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Deuteronomy 12, verse 32. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it or take away from it. All right? Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. And where do liars wind up? In the lake of fire. People should read that again. Look, heretics down through the centuries have added to, taken away from, and twisted the scriptures to their own destruction. You don't mess with God's word. And let me say this to you, no true believer, no true believer, with the Holy Spirit inside of them, would ever mess with God's word like that. To add, to subtract, to twist, just wouldn't happen. If the Holy Spirit's inside of you, the author of this book, you would never mess with God's Word. Unbelievers do that. Remember, some of you are way too young, but back in the 80s, Reader's Digest decided to publish a version of the Bible. I think it was called the Reader's Digest Bible. Where they decided there was too much verbiage in the Bible. It's just way too much. Too, too much extraneous information we don't need. So they decided they're going to whittle it down into some nice little bite-sized piece, I guess, where the busy man and woman 
doesn't have to worry about reading all of it. We'll just tell you what's the most important, and you can just read that. And what do they? They butcher Revelation. They left this out too, by the way. Uh, this warning: don't mess with the word. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. God's gonna not gonna be happy. They took that out. Okay. Um, amazing. All right. Amazing. Um, but those who know and love God's word, those who are true believers. Um, have the utmost respect for the word of God. And uh, we say with the psalm, it's in Psalm 119, verse 97, Oh, how I love your word. I meditate on it day and night. Um, it's my daily food. I live on your word. Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Revelation 22, verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Jesus speaking. Amen. Even so, John says, Come, Lord Jesus. Guys, a true understanding of Bible prophecy is a two-pronged thing. First of all, it motivates us to obey what God has said, uh, to be looking for Jesus' return, and therefore living a life that is... Um, consistent with the fact he's coming soon and when he comes i don't want him to find me living in sin so you know prophecy uh motivates us to obey but it also motivates us to share the gospel i mean have you ever read this book and been moved to tears because of what's coming and you have loved ones that don't know jesus yet what does that do it makes you want to pray harder and witness more to them. Bible prophecy is a very important, again, 27% of the Bible is prophecy. First of all, God said, I'm going to tell you things before they happen so that when they do happen, you know this is my book, my word, because nobody knows the end from the beginning. Nobody can tell you what's coming in the future and be right every single time like me. I'm not guessing. I know the future. It also gives us things to look for that indicate Jesus' coming is getting even more close, which, as John says, motivates us to live a holy life, right? First John 3, two or, verses 2 or 3. As we study prophecy, we realize that Jesus Christ's coming is getting very, very close. Time is short, and we want to make sure that we are living for him and we are sharing the good news, right? All right, verse 21. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. The word amen means truly. I don't know if you know this, but the last verse of the Old Testament, Malachi 4, verse 6, ends like this. Lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. So the Old Testament ends with a curse. The New Testament ends, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Of course, grace is getting what you don't deserve, right? Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Grace is what the gospel is built on. John Newton, the former slave trader, turned incredible man of God, wrote one of the most, well, celebrated, beautiful hymns of all time. Amazing grace, how sweet this sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Guys, let me just 
end by saying this. If you've been studying the book of Revelation with us these many months, two and a half years, um, and you see it as a book that glorifies in some ways judgment, you missed the point. You've missed the point. If you see the book of Revelation as a book that glorifies judgment, death, and destruction at the hands of a wrathful, vengeful God, you, are, you have missed the point. It is a prophetic warning given from the heart of a merciful God who desires all men, all women to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth so he can deliver them from the wrath to come. This is one big warning. Remember what God said to the prophet Ezekiel, to the people of Israel, turn, please turn from your sins. Why will you die? I don't get any pleasure out of the death of the wicked. God sends warnings through his prophets and now through an entire book warning people, look, I have to punish sin. I can't look the other way. Otherwise, it would not be the righteous God of all the universe. But understand, I don't want to send you to hell. I love you. That's why I sent my son to die for you. This book is telling us what's coming because God's got to punish sin in this world. But he's warning people through the judgments that's coming, telling us what's about to happen so that people will repent of their sins, get their lives right with God now before it's too late. That is not a, a wrathful, vengeful God sitting up in heaven and just counting the days when he can bring the hammer down and smash everybody in judgment. Right now is the age of grace. Today is the day of salvation. Don't harden your hearts any longer. If you're watching online, this is your time. This is your day to get your life right with God. Tomorrow isn't promised to anybody. You may, you may, you know, my wife just talked to a lady that she's known for many years. I forgot some of the details, but I think uh, her nephew uh, was not feeling well and took him to the doctor or the hospital, I forgot, and they let him go, and he said, I'm feeling better, I've turned the corner. Young guy, I don't know, 35 or so, and uh, mom, go home, I'm just gonna take a bath and I'm gonna go to bed. Didn't hear from him, 24 hours, asked the police to check on him, goes over there, his bath water had been drawn, and he was on the floor of the bathroom, he had died suddenly. You don't know what tomorrow's gonna bring. So don't put off to tomorrow or the next day what must be done right now, which is to get your life right with Jesus Christ while there is still time. I mean, 30 seconds before you die, if you give your heart to Christ, you're in heaven. Five seconds after you die, it's too late. You know, a second after you die, right? The time is short. Jesus said, Behold, I am coming quickly. Come and drink from the fountain of the water of life before it is too late. Amen. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your great grace and love toward us. Thank you, Lord, that you have not left us in darkness, that these things should overtake us as a thief. Forgive us, Lord, if we've ever dozed off in the light and have not diligently been watching. We must, in these last days, keep a vigilant watch um, for your coming, that we might pray harder, witness longer, and, Lord, be used by you in these last days to make a difference. 
Lord, we thank you for us, the promises you've given us, how someday and someday soon you're going to come for your church, and when you do, you're going to give us new bodies. We're going to live for eternity in your kingdom. There'll be no more tears, nor sorrow, nor death, nor crying. But right now, we pray that you would give us grace to be a light in this dark world, and that our loved ones who don't know you would come to you, Lord, before it's too late. We ask you to continue to bless our studies in your word, leading us to the next book. And we will seek to start the, the Wednesday after the new year. So just thank you, Lord. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.